Again, please open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And this morning we'll be looking at verse 7. We have redemption. Now I'm going to read a, a list of items. And I want you to think about what connects all of these. What common element connects all of these? Love. True friends. Family. Wisdom. Happiness. Health. Long life, time, respect, character, confidence, true beauty, a sense of humor, trust, talent, purpose for living, satisfaction, empathy, peace, a good name, and an honest politician. What? is common with all those things. You might think of a few things, but one major common thread that runs all those things is you cannot buy them. They're not for sale. No matter how much money you have, none of those items can be purchased. And this really, and as I began to look at the list that people put together of things you cannot buy, None of them contained anything spiritual or eternal. Which is interesting. That nobody, at least nobody in the list that I checked, I didn't go past the first page of uh, search results, but none of them were looking for anything spiritual or eternal. There's a lot of things, just temporary things that you cannot buy. But you certainly cannot buy the blessings that God provides to His children that we've been reading about in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, just as by way of reminder, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, Paul highlights numerous priceless blessings that you cannot buy, that God has given his people. Uh, the blessings are so numerous that Paul, in fact, starts out by saying in verse 3 that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every. Everyone. He hasn't withhold without anything. Then, then in the beginning of verse 4, Paul begins speaking about the blessing of election. That He wants us to know that these blessings don't flow from anything from within ourselves. They flow from the Father's predetermined plan. So he, he takes us in verse 4 to the issue of being chosen by Him. I mean, the doctrine of election. Chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. That we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. And then we saw last week that we've been predestined to be adopted as, as sons through Jesus Christ to the, to the praise of his glory. And this morning, we are going to see the, the beauty of redemption. All these things flow together. You can't separate one from another. We could talk about them distinctly. But God's intent is that his children receive every spiritual blessing. It's not as if some children get some of these blessings and other children get other blessings. All his children get all these blessings. They, they flow together. And remember that the father was not constrained to do these things. Time and time again, we, we see the, 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 just the phraseology, the way the word is put together here, that it's, the kind intention of his will. He desired to do these things. And these blessings are 100% grace gifts. You can't earn part of them. You can't earn any of them. You can't buy any of them. They're 100% grace gifts. And so just imagine Paul being a, a tour guide, taking us on a tour of the, the mountains of God's blessings. And this morning we're going to see the mountain of blessing of redemption. And that's what we're going to see from verse 7. Before we dig into that, I want to read verses 3 to 14, again, helping us to keep the bigger picture in mind as we dig into the details. So let's pick up our reading. Verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, 
to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him. For an administration of the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. In him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Notice that refrain um, three times stated in this passage, to the praise of his glory. It just helps us keep the, the big picture in mind. These truths are designed to cause us to praise our Lord and our God. And so in looking at verse 5, we're going to see five astounding truths of redemption that that function like a springboard to help you praise and adore your Lord and your God. Five uh, astounding truths of redemption that act as a springboard of praise in our lives. The first one is is really just looking at the first phrase in him is is this, the relationship of your redemption. Consider the relationship of your redemption. It is in him. Now, Christ is the focal point of really this entire passage. You have a section dealing with the Father's actions, and that's the section we find ourselves in. Then there's a a little bit larger section in the middle that deals with Christ. And at the end, you find two verses talking about the Holy Spirit. But even then, Christ is mentioned. And so what I want you to see is that Christ is the focal point of the glory of God. God the Father has chosen this plan, has given us a Redeemer, and that Redeemer deserves our praise. It's difficult in our minds as we think about the Trinity to, to think of one. As if you think of one, you think about, well, if I pray to Jesus, then maybe I should pray to the Father and then pray to the Spirit and pray to them equally so one doesn't get jealous over the other. That's not how it works with God. You're you're thinking like two individually. We have one God. So when we praise Christ, you praise the one God. And and again, it's hard for us to fathom that. But this is what the Bible reveals to us. He is the focal point of our salvation, of our redemption. Now, if you look at verse 7, most Bibles will, will begin with the translation, in him. Now, most Bibles uh, do that uh, to help you have it be more readable. It it literally is in him or in, sorry, in whom. Um, And the Bibles that you have capitalize, most of them capitalize pronouns when they refer to deity. So you see in him. So it's very easy for you to tell, okay, this is speaking about deity. But if you didn't have that, what would you use? You would would look at at the context in him. So a pronoun refers uh, to a noun that, that came before it. So you just look at the context. Just a little bit of, of teaching you how to study your Bible. Look at the context and look back in. In him. In in whom. is Literally, in whom. Back up to verse 6 and you say, in the beloved. So that in him refers to in the beloved. Well, well, who is the beloved? Okay, sort of functioning as another pronoun. Well, you just back up a little bit more and you see... We see in verse 5, he says, by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. So the Father predestined us through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. So the beloved is pointing to Jesus Christ. So so going back to verse 7, in him is through Jesus Christ. And, And just in case... You, you, you want to check to make sure that you understand that correctly. You just keep reading in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The father has no blood. It's only the son who became incarnate that ever had blood. So it just kind of confirms who this passage is talking about. Christ is the focal point of the father's redemption. 
and you must be redeemed in him. There's no other there's no other person through whom you can be redeemed. There's no other relationship by which you can be redeemed. The Apostle Paul makes it clear the fact that redemption is in him, in Christ. And it's in Christ that we have a redemption. And there is no other God who can save you. There's no other prophet who can save you. There's no other good person who can redeem you. It is only in him, only in Jesus is redemption found. Now the phrase in him refers to the sphere of relationship, a sphere of redemption. That implies a relationship. When we talk about a sphere, you're talking about a relationship. You must have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, there, there are times where people will say, well, especially in evangelism, they'll say, well, you need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the difference between, say, dead, dead religion and living religion. It's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But I think as Christians, we need to be a little bit more specific and we need to be a little bit more careful with our phraseology, well, the words that we say. Because since Christ was involved in creation, and since he sustains everything that there is, everybody on the planet has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The atheist has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Everybody does. The issue isn't whether they have a relationship or not. They may deny him, but he's still related to them because he helped create them. He sustains them. The issue is, do they have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? See, everybody's in relationship. The issue is, are you in a relationship which is going to condemn you? Or are you in a relationship that's going to redeem you and save you? So Everybody has that relationship, one or the other. And when we talk about being in relationship with Jesus Christ, what are we talking about? We're talking about fellowship. And when I use the word fellowship, I'm not just talking about like talking. I'm talking about koinonia. It's the Greek word koinonia. It's having a shared life together. And having that shared life together brings you in communion. And, and part of the, the, the communion and fellowship that we have in Christ, Paul relates this accurately in, in Galatians 2.20, where he says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So if you want to know what it, what it means to be in him, Galatians 2.20 describes that nicely. It's the fact that your life is now hidden in Christ and Christ lives in you. In John 6, Jesus spoke about the life that he gives to those who believe. And I'll just ask you to turn there so you can see it for yourself. Turn to John 6. John chapter 6. And begin reading at verse 41. This is in the context of Jesus speaking about, about uh, how he is the, the bread of life. And in, in that context, he's, he's talking about, um, just pick up in verse 40, he says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that, that came down from heaven. And they were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they shall be they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that everyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And also the bread which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man 
and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding about this passage. Jesus is not using hit bread and drink of his, of his blood in a literal sense. And, and we know that because he's talking about that he's the bread out of heaven. Jesus isn't encouraging cannibalism. He isn't encouraging the drinking of blood, which was prohibited by the Old Testament. He is speaking about receiving him by, by faith. And I re- read that, I read the passage to you because it helps us understand how our life is so connected to Christ. If, if you are a Christian, you are in Christ. Your life is connected with his. In, in a very mysterious and, and but truly spiritual way. Um, the Lord God is our life. And so it's a simple point, but I just, just ask, do, do you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ today? Christ is the only way. He is the only bread from heaven that can grant eternal life. I mean, are you trusting in him today? You must be found in him to be redeemed. And and this really is astounding. This is an astounding truth because you have the second person of the Trinity in personal relationship with sinners. In that redemption, drawing you into a relationship, a, a saving relationship, a caring relationship with him. That's that's the first truth of your redemption. Um, the, the second is your need for redemption, right? The fact that you're in a relationship with the Father, if you're redeemed, you're, you're redeemed in Him. But we don't appreciate that redemption unless we understand our need for redemption. And notice, notice what Paul says next. He says, we have redemption. That's important because prior to that, he needed redemption, just like each of us needs redemption. Now, what does redemption mean? Well, redemption basically in English means an occasion when someone is saved from evil or suffering or or different circumstances. So it's a fairly generic use or broad use of the term. The the biblical idea of redemption includes the rescuing of someone from evil and suffering. Uh, We see this in the Old Testament. The, the The first time we see the concept of redemption with this meaning is in Genesis 48:16, when Israel, who is formerly named Jacob, blessed Joseph's sons Ephraim and Manasseh. He used the term to describe God. He used the term redeemer to describe God as the one who has redeemed me from all evil. So redemption includes the, the rescuing from evil. We see that in the Old Testament. And it is theologically significant that the first time the word redeem is used in the Old Testament, that it refers to God delivering his people, God rescuing his people from evil. And, and then the word also occurs later in, 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 in Exodus, uh, in Exodus 6 and Exodus 15, of, of God redeeming the nation of Israel from Egypt. Now, the, the word redeem appears multiple times in Leviticus. And with the idea of buying something back. We talked about this when we studied the book of Ruth. That, that if someone got into financial hardship, they had to sell their house uh, in order to pay off that financial debt. Then a someone who is close by, what we call the kinsman redeemer, the closest relative, could actually go buy back that house on behalf of the relative. If the relative sold himself into slavery, then, then that kinsman redeemer could go actually buy that person back out of financial slavery. And the book of Psalms and the book of Isaiah further develop the important idea as God as Redeemer, who delivers and saves his people 
from from various circumstances, but more significantly, you begin to see he's redeeming them from their sin. And that appears many times in, in the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah, I'm sorry, Yahweh is described as the redeemer par excellence. That means the, the most excellent redeemer. While a kinsman redeemer could help you on a small scale, it was it was the redeemer, Yahweh himself, who, who needed to redeem us from evil, trouble, and even sin. And thus God's people are routinely called through in Scripture the redeemed. We're called the redeemed. Now, this Old Testament background fuels the Apostle Paul's use of the word redemption here. The Greek word that Paul uses in verse 7, he also uses in verse 14, and then later in chapter 4, it refers to, to setting someone free by paying a price. Setting someone free by paying a price. One dictionary explains the word, along with several related words, that the, there's not one re- word for redemption. These words mean to release or set free with the implied analogy to the process of freeing a slave. That is to settle, to, to set, sorry, to set free, to liberate, to deliver, liberation and deliverance. So it carries the idea of setting a slave free. So while the emphasis on the word is releasing or setting free, the word also includes the idea of a ransom paid, a ransom paid. And Ephesians chapter one, verse seven bears this meaning by the inclusion of the phrase by his blood. Now, this implies that before redemption, believers were slaves. Now, Americans don't like to consider ourselves slaves, but all of us were born into slavery we are all born into slavery. And the context here helps us understand that Paul is not talking about physical or literal slavery. Not every, if you just think about who he is writing to, the, the, the Christians in Ephesus. So were there slaves, Christian slaves in Ephesus? Yes, there were. He addresses those later on in this very book. But not every Christian was a literal slave to somebody else. So Paul is speaking here of a of a spiritual or a figurative. He's using the figurative sense of the word slave or the idea of redeeming. You're redeeming someone out of slavery. That it is a figurative use of that, but it is a nonetheless a literal slavery, as we'll see. Now, in what ways were you slaved prior in enslaved prior to redemption? Well, there are several ways. First of all, we were all slaves to sin. In John 8, 31 through 36, Jesus says that all who believe in him are made free from slavery to sin. So turn to John 8. I think it's important that you see this because it helps you appreciate redemption. And if you're not redeemed today, it helps you understand your need for redemption. So John 8, being at verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's seed and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So they're asking the question a lot of Americans would ask. Like We've never been enslaved to anybody. How can you say that we're actually enslaved? Well, Jesus gives that answer. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And when Jesus uses that phrase, truly, truly, he's not just stuttering. He's giving it to try to draw attention to something that's extremely important. Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Is there anybody here that has not committed sin? At least one. I can ask that safely because I know that that all of you have sinned. I have sinned. There's not a single one of us in the room who has not sinned. And and the sin here, keep in mind, is not just that you've, you've done something, um, but it's really the state that you're born into sin. So from the very time that you were a young, little, innocent-looking child, you nonetheless were born into spiritual slavery. Look what he says in verse 35. He says, And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So Jesus came to set us free from slavery to sin. 
Paul builds on this very idea in Galatians 5.1 when he says that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, stand firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Because what happens sometimes is Christians forget that they are free from sin in their old man, their old pattern in their life, and they begin to act like they're still slaves. But they're really free. So that's how Paul is using that analogy in, in Galatians 5.1. So we're slaves to sin, but, but that's not all. We're actually slaves to Satan's desires. Uh, in John 8, again, looking at, at verse 37, it's just going down the, in that context a little bit, he, he, was, he is speaking of the, how, we are, how we are enslaved to Satan's desires. Now he's speaking to the Pharisees, Sadducees here, but it, it applies to any unbeliever. He says, I know that you are Abraham's seed, yet you are seeking to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things that which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, you would do the deeds of Abraham. But now you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from Abraham. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God and have not even come of myself, but he sent me. So Jesus is, is drawing out the fact that these, the unregenerate are not only enslaved to sin, but you're also enslaved to do your father's bidding. Who is your father if you're unregenerate? That is Satan. And that is the scary nature of that. That even in this room, we could have some who are still have uh, the Satan as their father. And, and the writer that Paul builds on this, again, this same very concept in 2 Corinthians. I'll just read that to you. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 to 4. He says, And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan is dominating and controlling the unregenerate. In fact, so much so, he, it, Scripture describes him as blinding the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel or the glory of Christ. Uh, Christ pierces through that darkness, but that's how well, that's the slavery that we're born into. And the, and the writer of Hebrews also emphasizes this in Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. I'll just read that to you. He says, Therefore, since the children shared flesh and blood, he himself likewise, meaning Christ, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and he might set free, and he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So Satan holds people captive under slavery, under the fear of death, to, to do his will. So you're slaves of sin, you're slaves of Satan's desires, and you're slaves to corruption. Romans 8.21 speaks about this. How it tells us the entire creation is enslaved to corruption. And this ties into the doctrine of total depravity. We won't do a rabbit trail on total depravity, but total depravity just means that every part of your being has been impacted by sin. It doesn't mean you're as bad as you could be. It doesn't mean that you can't do relative good things. You can help your neighbor. You can help an old lady cross the street. You can buy a neighbor groceries without being in Christ. What is just total depravity is just that every part of your being has been impacted by sin. Genesis 6, 6 5 speaks about this. Uh, just gives us an idea of how pervasive sin is in our lives before Christ. Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Notice all those modifiers. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And from God's perspective, even when we do relative good things before redemption, those things are like filthy rags. They are not worth anything. So everyone's born as slaves to sin, slaves to the devil, slaves to corruption. And we're enslaved and unable to free ourselves from these evil and destructive masters. 
We need redemption. We need a savior. And hence why is what we're talking about. We have redemption. Our desperate need of redemption should be obvious when you just look at these things. And, and again, we're emphasizing these things because if you don't understand your need for redemption, then you don't appreciate the gift of it. So you know, most of you know these things. It's just a reminder for others of you who are not in Christ, let this be a wake-up call that you are enslaved to these things. And someone will say, well, how do, how do I know that I'm really enslaved to sin? Just try to stop. If you're not in Christ, just try to stop. You won't be able to. No matter how hard you try. That that demonstrates the, the proof of, of you know of Scripture, what Scripture is saying. We are enslaved, prior to Christ, we are enslaved to sin. But the good news is that God grants redemption. And that's what this passage is about. So go back to Ephesians, Ephesians 1, if you're not already there. Ephesians 1, and notice we have the phrase, we have redemption. And this is a, a change in the verbs. So when you're studying the Bible, you want to pay attention to the verbs. So up to now, it's just been God. It's been God doing work. But right here, Paul interjects through the Holy Spirit the pronoun we. We have. We have redemption. So this is a present, ongoing possession. And Paul doesn't just say, some of us have. Notice he uses, he's using we and to include himself. So this is, this is generic. This isn't just the Ephesians. This is speaking about Christians worldwide, wherever you're at, whenever time, time period you live. We have redemption. And again, I say it's not just some of us have, but we have, meaning every Christian has redemption. There's no Christian without redemption. Um, redemption is a present ongoing possession of all true believers. You either have it or you don't have it. It's all or nothing. You're not partially redeemed. It's either you are redeemed or you're not redeemed. Now, what are the implications of a statement like this? We have redemption. Well, first of all, God wants you to know whether or not you're redeemed. I mean, Paul says we have redemption, but God's going to keep it hidden from you. He didn't add that. We have redemption. The whole passage is designed what? To praise God. You're not going to praise God if you're worried about whether you're redeemed or not. You're going to praise God when you understand that you have redemption. Another implication is that genuine believers do not become unredeemed after the redeemed. That would just make no sense at all. Like logically, you, you would be saying that God, God redeems people and then, and then somehow turns it around and now they're like because of their own personal sin, now they become unredeemed. That, that goes against the, the tenure of the whole passage. He, he chose you before the foundation of the world. He predestined you to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. The whole, the whole premise is God did this ahead of time. Paul is now jumping ahead of to talk about your redemption. So you have that in him. And, and God doesn't make a mistake. He doesn't go back and forth and back and forth. You're transferred at your salvation, at your redemption. You're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And you stay in the kingdom of light, even though sometimes you act like a, like, a, like someone that's still in the darkness. That doesn't remove you from the kingdom of light. You're still in the kingdom of light. So walk in the light is what scripture says. See, your redemption is secure because it's in him. It's not in you. It's not anything you did. And also, another implication is genuine disciples um, rejoice in the fact that you're redeemed. You're redeemed. So trust the Lord for his provision of redemption in your life. Praise the Lord for his glorious, glorious redemption, this gift of redemption. Again, you cannot buy redemption. You cannot buy spiritual redemption. You cannot buy your soul. Only Christ can do that. Well, let's look at the third, the third fact of uh, redemption, the third astounding fact of redemption that, that really is a springboard for praise to God, and that is the cost of your redemption. When you consider the great cost, it, it makes you more appreciative of what Christ has done. What does that cost? Through his what? Blood. 
through his blood. If you were enslaved by the mightiest nation on earth, because of God's omnipotence, he could just he could just rescue you with his power. He would hardly have to do anything. And when God uses his power, it doesn't drain him any. You know, in, in the Star Wars movies, when the when like Yoda or one of the one of the actors uses supposedly uses the force, it drains them of power and now they're weak. That doesn't happen with God. God uses his power and his might. And he doesn't drain him at all. So again, if you're if you're a slave of a of a the mightiest nation on earth, God could rescue you without any effort on his part. If you were enslaved by massive financial debt, then God could just send a, a redeemer to you, someone a kinsman redeemer, a rich uncle or a rich aunt. Right? He could rain down money from heaven. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Again. No effort to God because he owns everything anyway. But before Christ, you are enslaved to sin. What is God going to do about that in order to redeem you? He can't just use his power to kind of cover your sin. He just can't send somebody else to to like pay some price because this is not this is not money. This is your soul. You could be redeemed and you can be redeemed, but the price is costly. Your price is costly. Now, let's remember how we were enslaved. We were enslaved because of sin. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, to some, you'd say, well, okay, I've heard that verse before. It doesn't, doesn't sound too bad. I mean, so we're all sinners. But then consider Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. So you've sinned and you're guilty against God. And the penalty for that is death. And, and not just physical death, but physical death is included in that. It's a separation from God. It's a, from him. And again, for some, you might not, you might not, you might say, well, that doesn't sound too bad. Everybody dies. I see. Um. And that's true, but you'd have to consider that that upon your physical death doesn't release you from the penalty of sin. You know why that is? Because you're a sinner. Because you're a sinner, your death does not pay for your sins. And so there is a penalty that is ongoing throughout eternity as you continue to pay. That punishment is ongoing. God doesn't punish you in eternity uh, if you are without Christ, he doesn't punish you in eternity just because he enjoys punishment. He punishes you. That punishment is ongoing in hell because your sin is ongoing. At no point do you ever repent. At no point do you ever like bow the knee and say, God, you were right. It's just continual rebellion. But no person can redeem themselves. And, and the Psalms draw this out. The psalmist does in Psalm 49, verse Seven, he says, truly, no man can redeem his brother. And Jesus says no, that, that a great love is that one man would die for another. That's that's one of the greatest forms of love, even to this day, that, that you would sacrificially give your life for another. But on a spiritual basis, he, scriptures say no man can redeem his brother. He cannot give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption price for their soul is costly. The redemption price for the soul is costly. This prior to being in Christ, you owed a debt, a spiritual debt to God's righteousness. This is a blood debt that, that you can't pay and no one else could pay it for you. Now, this debt is something that, that would put us in a very hopeless situation were it not for the Father's plan, which we are looking at today, that we are redeemed in Christ. So how did Christ redeem you? How did, how did Christ, our God, redeem us from this blood debt that we owed? This blood debt to God's righteousness. But it's through the blood of Christ. Now, when the scriptures mention the blood, like in a context like this, it's not talking about the, the liquid itself. It, it's not saying that the liquid itself is somehow, the blood of Jesus is somehow magical. That if you just take a drop of his blood, it will cover your sins. 
through his blood is referring to, the term blood is referring to his death. When animals were sacrificed in the Old Testament, they just didn't bleed them a little bit and use their blood to sprinkle on the altar. That animal was sacrificed. The lamb was slaughtered. The bull was slaughtered. And at times, blood flowed in just in very graphic ways that we would have trouble even understanding today, but flowed from the temple. Gallons of it flowing down the mountainside into the Kidron Valley. All of that was because of sin. All of that was was to help picture the ultimate Lamb of God, which would be needed to be slain on our behalf. In, in Leviticus 17, 11, God told Israel that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So notice the, that there that passage is connecting the imagery of blood with, with life and death. Right? So something has to die to atone for sins. And the blood is, is a symbol of that life. This is why it's significant when John the Baptist in, in John 1, 29 tells, tells us, we're related there. He says, on the next day, he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. John saw ahead of time Jesus, the Lamb, not a physical lamb. Again, it's a symbolism of the fact that he would be slain for our sins. He would die a death for our sins. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb who died to redeem us. His death was absolutely necessary to redeem us. And this is a very important point in Christian theology. Paul tells us in Galatians 3.13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's speaking of his crucifixion. It was important, not just that Jesus die, but that he die in the way that was predicted of him, to be hung on a tree, hung on a cross. Turn with me into Hebrews chapter 9. Talk about the importance of our redemption, the fact that there was a high price to pay for our redemption. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning at verse 17. Hebrews 9, verse 17. For covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who makes it lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats, with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, he sprinkled with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter holy places made with hands, mere copies of the true ones, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy places year by year with blood that is not his own, Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await for him. What a blessing it is. Christ died once for all. Once for all. Not weekly or daily, as is suggested by Roman Catholic Church doctrine. Once for all. One sacrifice, one atonement, taken care of to redeem you. And it cost him his life. 
Now, Paul builds on this in, in Romans chapter 3. If you would turn there. And I'm having, have, asking you to turn to these so that you see it yourself. Redemption is an important doctrine in the Christian faith. So you need to understand this. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith for a demonstration of His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Some might say, well, since God's God and He can do anything that He wants to do, why can't why can't he just wipe away our sin? Why was there an atonement needed? Why did Christ have to die? Well, this verse tells us that. Christ had to die in order to be the propitiation for our sins so that God would be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. He's both. He, he can't just push your sins underneath the carpet and pretend like it doesn't exist. In order to justify you, to be your justifier through faith in Christ, giving you Christ's perfect righteousness, he had to deliver perfect justice against your sins. And that Christ took on the cross for you, for you. Peter builds on this. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1, a verse you we've looked at in the past. 1 Peter 1. Beginning at verse 17, 1 Peter 1, 17. And if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your sojourn, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your futile conduct inherited from your forefathers. But watch verse 19, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, the blood of Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So that your faith and hope are in God. So, so it's that precious blood of the Lamb that redeems you, that purifies you, and gives you uh gives you, it sorry, brings you into that relationship with God that, that provides redemption for you. The idea of redemption, this high cost of Christ purchasing our redemption is seen also in Revelation. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. So looking in the future. Let's pick up in verse 6. Then I saw in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders a lamb Standing as if slain. Now just a minute. This is looking in the future. And here. Christ. So identifies. With our redemption. And the high price that redemption. That he's still pictured. He's still pictured. As a lamb standing as if slain. So he's standing. So therefore he's living. But he's as if slain. Christ is so is is receives such honor for redeeming us for the high price that he paid he's exalted above all but he always carries about him the marks of that lamb that perfect lamb who was slain before the foundation as if before the foundation of the world this elder i mean sorry these these the elders around the throne in the midst of the elders a lamb standing as if slain having seven horns seven eyes which are the seven spirits of god sent out into all the earth and he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, because 
You were slain and purchased for God with your blood, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So even in Revelation, the future, Jesus will be known as the Lamb, pointing back to his once for all uh, payment, his once for all death for our sins to redeem us. Now, just meditate on these things. How should you respond? Christ died for you. A high price you could not pay. No one could pay it for you, yet he paid it for you. Now, it it should cause you to give great thanks to God. And I want to build on that by looking at at the fourth fact of your redemption, and that is the depth of your redemption. What What does your redemption accomplish? Well, we know it brings us into relationship, but here with God, but here Paul points out something specific, the forgiveness of our sins. Forgiveness. That is the price. That that is the result of Christ dying for you. The forgiveness of your transgressions. Now, the word transgression conveys the imagery of one that is making a false step so as to lose your footing. If you've ever been hiking and your foot kind of slips a little bit, that's, that's, that's the imagery that the word transgression brings about. But it here we're talking not just about uh, physical mistake, we're talking about a violation of moral standards. But this word transgression is more than just like an accidental, oh, violation of moral standards. Oh, you didn't know that was the law. Like sometimes you end up you end up speeding because you don't know the speed limit. Uh, that's not what this is. This is talking about flagrant transgression. Uh, it, is, uh, it is not an innocent mistake. One dictionary notes this. It said this word indicates a conscience and deliberate false step or error. It denotes a conscience and willful act against God's holiness and his righteousness. It's a willful act against God's holiness and righteousness. So what is a transgression in, in a practical sense? A transgression is anything that flows from the works of the flesh. Let me give you some practical examples. Galatians 5. Verse 19 talks about the works of the flesh. So these would qualify as transgressions. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. In other words, it's not an exhaustive list. And in fact, later on in verse 26, he says, let us not become those with vainglory challenging one another, envying one another. Vainglory just means look, seeking after things for your own glory. And these, this again, this is not an exhaustive list. So you have this massive debt of sin that's against you. And Jesus, through his redemption, provides forgiveness of your sins. What is forgiveness? It's basically the agreement never to bring your sins up to you ever again. Uh, as human beings, we have faulty memory. If a sin is far enough in the past, you forget about it. And that's a good thing. But God never forgets. God doesn't gain information. He also doesn't lose information. So when when we're talking about forgiveness, that's a significant thing with God. That's his agreement never to bring your sin up to you ever again or use it uh, against you. Or use it as a as a charge against you, even though it was your sin. Micah seven nineteen illustrates forgiveness this way, speaking of God, he says, "And you will cast their sins into the depths of the sea." What is the imagery there? It's like taking a a rock, right, and throwing it into the depths of the sea, into the deepest part of the ocean that we haven't even discovered yet. And it sinks to the bottom, never to be brought up again. Beautiful imagery. It's not like the fisherman's bob that bobs back up after a little while. It's the rock. It's a cast iron thrown into the sea, and it's going down, and it's never coming up. It's never seeing daylight again. That's forgiveness for us. Uh, Psalm 103, verse 12, uses a different imagery, but nonetheless impressive. As far as the east is from the West, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. How far is the East from the West? 
Do they ever meet? Well, no. If you go west and keep going west, hey, will you ever find east? And I'm not just talking about like East China or somewhere like that. The directions. Do east and west ever meet? No, because as far as you go around, you keep going west and east is always in front of you. And if you go east, then west is always in front of you. That's the imagery here. God removes your sin totally from you. He takes that, takes the load off your back. Absolutely praise the Lord. And if that wasn't enough, biblical forgiveness does more than that. Not only does it take your sin and like, get rid of it totally, but it does this. It reconciles us to a holy God. It allows him to bring us close to him. One author says this, he says, forgiveness is not merely a remission of past guilt. That would be, that, that, that alone is a massive blessing. But he says it is not merely a remission of past guilt, but also includes total deliverance from the power of sin and the restoration to fellowship with God. Forgiveness takes place because God gives himself completely in the sacrifice of his son and so gives sinners a share in his own righteousness. And thus in Christ, one becomes a pardoned sinner and a new creation. That's what God's forgiveness does. A pardoned sinner and a new creation. He does both of those things through his forgiveness. Now, Dave Ramsey is in the business of helping people get debt-free. And when they get debt-free, you can go down to his office and you can do the debt-free screen. I don't know if you ever heard those or not. I don't know Does he? I don't know if he actually verifies that those people are actually debt-free or they're there just to get on the radio. I'm not sure. How would you ever know? Well, he could ask to see what? The title. Show me the title to your home. Show me the title to your car. You show me that, I'll believe you're debt-free, and then you can do your debt-free screen. I don't know if he does that or not. But what's the title deed to your redemption? How do you know that you've been redeemed? How do you know that your sins have been forgiven? How do you know that God's taken your sins and, and cast them into the deepest part of the sea? You look to Christ. And is he continually dying? No, we don't use a cross with Christ still on it, because it's a once-for-all sacrifice. But Christ is not continually dying on the cross. Also note, the scripture does not leave him in the grave. He did what? He rose victorious from the grave. Why was a bodily resurrection so important? It's important because it shows that the payment for sin has been paid. Paid in full. Christ is risen from the grave. Right? So the title of your redemption is the resurrection of Christ. That's how you know that if you believe in Jesus Christ, he will forgive your sins. He will redeem you. That is your proof from God. And you say, well, that's not much proof. You're going to have an impossible time convincing God of that. It is a bad case. You will lose it. But you do not have to. Believe in Christ today and you shall be saved because Christ paid the full payment for your sins. Christ fully propitiated the wrath of God for your sins. You do not have to meet the Father as your judge. Meet him as your Father who loves you, cares for you, and provides everything for you. Well, there's one more fact of your redemption that I need to cover. And that is at the end of, end of this verse, in verse 7, that is the, the richness of your redemption according to, his, according to the riches of his grace. Now the prepositions in the Bible often reveal a very rich theology. Sometimes we don't think of prepositions as very important at all. Sometimes they are very important. And this is one of those cases. Paul does not say that we have been redeemed out of the riches of God's grace. But he says we are redeemed according to the riches of his grace. Well, what's the difference? Well, look at it this way. Suppose you're a waiter. You're waiting at tables at a local restaurant. When Nick Chubb walks in with his family. And is seated in your area. So you're taking care of him. 
And you make sure you give them really good service. And their dinner bill, it's not terribly high, but comes to $100. Now, what kind of tip are you hoping for? Do you want a tip out of Nick Chubb's wealth, or do you want a tip according to Nick Chubb's wealth? Well, if he gives you out of, it gives you a tip out of his wealth, he could merely give you 10 bucks. That's out of his wealth. Out of his millions, he gave you 10 bucks. But if he gave you a tip according to his wealth, he might give you $1,000. You see the difference? According to means in proportion to, in alignment with. So the Father has given us grace upon grace upon grace. He hasn't, his, his abundant grace and his abundant blessings, he hasn't just taken like a little drop of that and applied it to you. He's given you blessings that are in according to his grace, his limitless grace. That's what God has done for us. So since God has blessed us with, with the priceless blessing of redemption, the forgiveness of sins according to his riches of his grace. You do not need any further grace. Sometimes we think we need something further from God. When you think you need something further from God, go back to Ephesians 1 and remind yourself of what God has already given to you. God has already given this to you. And we can say away with any kind of doctrine, whether it's from a Roman Catholic church or anywhere else that says that you need further grace, that you need extra grace. Or that there's, there's this treasury of grace that somehow the saints pile up in heaven and it gets applied to you. Well, that's nonsense. It's bad doctrine that doesn't come from the Bible, but you also don't need it. If God has provided you with, with blessings that are according to his grace, you don't need anything else. Again, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. See how these things all tie together. So, how are you going to react? How are you going to react to these things? Can I plead with you not to be numb about these things? Don't be numb. How would you respond if you were walking in Medina Square and as you're walking along, someone from the second story began throwing cash out the window and they were saying, free, free cash, come and get it. Would you just keep walking? Along the street and say, nah, I'm, I'm cool. I'm cool. I, I don't need that. I don't think so. You'd be making a, a grab for the cash. Assuming it's legitimate cash, but that, but I made this illustration, so that, that's what, it, that's the way it works. But you have a, a God, not a God, the God of the universe, who is prepared to give you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you'll but repent of your sins and believe in Christ. Can, can you really just keep walking and say, no, I'm cool. I, I don't need any of that. Don't do that. Believe in Christ. Accept him today to be a redeemer. You might say, well, how do I do that? Well, well you just right there in your seat. You confess that you're a sinner to God. Not to me, not to anybody else, but to, but to God. And you call upon him and ask him to save you. Ask him to be your redeemer. He won't turn you away. He's not that kind of God. Trust in him to be your redeemer. So beloved, when you read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, take note of the five astounding truths of your redemption. The relationship of your redemption that is in him, in Christ. The need for your redemption that you are slaves, but Christ purchased you out of that. You have now been redeemed. You have it as present position. The cost of your redemption, that is, through his blood. The depth of your redemption, that is, the forgiveness of your trespasses. They're totally gone and you're brought into a relationship with our God. And the richness of your redemption. That the redemption is according to the riches of God's grace. And respond in praise to your Lord and your God. Fanny Crosby was born in 1820. Some of you may know her name, but others may not. She was Born blind, um, there's some debate about the way whether she was born blind or lost her sight at six weeks old. Either way, she spent the majority of her life blind. Uh, her father died when she was six months old. She was raised by her mother. 
and uh, grandmother. But she didn't let these hardships determine the course of her life. Despite being blind, she learned to write in a day before Braille was commonplace. In 1851, she began writing poetry and setting that poetry to music. She was actually writing before that, but in 1851, she began writing poetry to music. And she was a prolific hymn writer. She wrote somewhere between 5,000, 5,500, and 9,000 hymns. And the reason that we don't know exactly how many hymns she wrote is because that, that she, she didn't want her name on everything, so she used over 200 pseudonyms, I mean, false names. So we don't know exactly how many hymns she wrote. We have a few of her hymns in our, in our hymnal. But one of the hymns that she wrote was called Redeemed, How I Love to Proclaim It. I'm going to read that to you because it aptly summarizes the blessings of Ephesians 1, chapter 7. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy. His child and forever I am. I think of my blessed Redeemer. I think of Him all the day long. I sing, for I cannot be silent. His love is the theme of my song. I know I shall see in his beauty the king in whose law I delight, who lovingly guardeth my footsteps and giveth me songs in the night. And after each one of those stanzas, there's a refrain that goes like this. Redeemed. Redeemed. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. His child and forever I am. All of us, whether you know that hymn or not, all of us should want to jump in and sing that hymn in our, in our hearts. Remind yourself of what the Lord has given you when the scriptures say that you are redeemed. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God. What can we say in light of these things? Thank you seems too cheap. But what else do we have but words in our lives to say thank you and to praise you? Oh Lord, I just pray that you would just, just bore these truths into our lives that we would be of those who sing your praises in our hearts every day, all the day long, redeemed, redeemed. Make us those who love to proclaim it, not because we've earned it, because you've granted it, because you're the great God who gives redemption. Oh, Lord, thank you for making us your children forever because of the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.